Welcome to this week's Treasury Career Corner podcast, where I interview treasury professionals about their treasury careers. Each and every week, I talk to them about how they've built their careers, where they are now, where they see both themselves and the treasury profession going to next. Let's get on with the show. This week's show, I'm joined by John Jackson. John recently retired as the group treasurer of Seven Trent after over 30 years in corporate treasury and banking. Highlights of his career, as we were talking about earlier, include working in Hong Kong for M&S, finance director of the Treasury Division at Halifax Building Society during the period when they converted to a bank and was also part of the team which enabled the solvent restructuring of British Energy a while ago. John himself is looking forward, obviously, now to spend a bit more time with family, but also, more importantly, with his collection of guitars, which we'll do, we'll probably talk about later on in the show. But John, take us back to the beginning, if you would, and how you first got your start in Treasury, and I know as a young lad, many years ago. So back over to you, sir. Yes, many years ago, last century, in fact, uh, uh, of course. <laughs> and yeah, I had no great aspirations at school to anything in, in finance or anything. I think, if anything, it was all about... Uh, possibly joining the Navy or something like that. Went to university because, you know, that's what my mates did. And I did an economics degree and it really just sort of progressed from there. When I came out of university, I still didn't know particularly what I wanted to do. So I hedged my bets and chose chartered accountancy. And from there, I went to Waterhouse, and from there to Marks & Spencer, which I had a fantastic time for a few years, working overseas mainly in, um, and in particular in Hong Kong. That was early days of your career, but quite unusual to make a move quite early, that early. You know, nowadays, people perhaps choose it a little bit more, you know, to go over. But if you look back at a number of the people that I've spoken to on the show, they wouldn't have said, all right, joined MS, but actually I was in Hong Kong. So what was that like for you? I talked to a guy on the show recently. He'd been, one of his earliest roles was suddenly FP&A in Vietnam and the early stages of his career. And he said it was great because it made him for later. What, what was that like for you? I think it's a fantastic opportunity. I mean, M&S was going through quite an overseas expansion. So you were sort of at the vanguard of things as far as their, their strategy was concerned. I was still in, I think I was 27 when I went to Hong Kong as financial controller. So it was a terrific responsibility. But you always had the wealth, the power, the resources of a, of a FTSE, I think it was FTSE 10 in those days, yeah, yeah. company behind you. So you, you only had to lift up the phone, shout help down the line, and someone would come and, and, and do that. So it was part of a management team that we'd just set up. We were building our own stores there. It was the start of M&S moving away from selling mainly UK merchandise. And, and so there was a lot of people coming over looking at you know, Far Eastern suppliers. So it was. Um, I was just incredibly lucky to be there. Hong Kong's a great place to see the rest of the Far East as well. Uh, places like uh, Malaysia, Singapore, Philippines. Yeah. So it was. I did, obviously, I didn't want to come home. It was, <laughs> but MNS had a strict policy that you did two-year tours of things, and right. you know, in fact, you had to move on to something else. So you returned, and then, and then Halifax beckoned. What, what, what was that? That was not, I would say, a complete 100% career move. I, w- I was very happy in MS, but working in London, commuting up to Baker Street, personal circumstances was that the, both my wife and I had had flats at the time of the property crash. And we were sitting on negative equity. 
And Halifax Building Society had a sort of the opportunity to go and live in West Yorkshire, out in out in the Pennines, and some are really nice. We had just had our first son. It was an interesting place to go and work. I really liked the people. And more than anything, we moved from a one-bedroom flat to, to a house in the Pennines. So it ticked a number of boxes. But, you know, if you look back on it, that's a purely a career thing. Yeah. Moved from Deputy Treasurer Marks and Spencer to what was Treasury Financial Controller at Halifax. It was slightly odd. It really worked, and in the long term, it worked out fantastically. And also, it was a, an interesting time because it was when I was first starting my treasury recruitment career, and there was the thing called, and people won't understand this, but you and I did, but Halifax and HBOS, and and there was you know different parts to it. Mm. You'd made the move from a corporate treasury, and we'll yeah. talk about this because you, and then went to banking treasury, but with a corporate twist, and then back to sort of, and then there was angry water and various other bits. But what was that like? How did your brain react to, oh, hang on, I'm now not in that corporate with M&S, obviously, high street retailer, again, for perhaps some of our US listeners and things like that, you know, M&S itself, a massive retail chain, and then making that move. What was that like? It was a very, very different culture. Halifax Building Society was you know, a mortgage factory, the largest building society in the world, the largest mortgage lender in the UK, steeped in tradition, like M&S, I guess, for 150 years plus. And really, the business model hadn't changed that much. In terms of the treasury aspects, you know, some of the things were very familiar to me, uh, yeah. the funding aspects and, and the way that it was very corporate in its focus. We were not, as a building society, profit centre. We were there to supplement the, the funding that was coming from retail deposits and do some risk management stuff around the edges. But it was great. I mean, I, I would recommend for anybody that wants to have a treasury career, don't shut yourself up from the idea of actually, you know, might be said, going to the dark side, going to, into banking for a while. Yeah, yeah. Because you get a completely different view of how things work, how banks look at corporates. And that can be really invaluable to you going down the line. There's things that banks do really well that corporates are only catching up with now in terms of things like risk management, quantification of risk. And so it didn't do me any harm at all in the in the in the long run doing that. And I think I learned an awful lot from the from that time as well. I sometimes talk as well, just before we move on in the career, but and and just bring out that that piece about banking treasury versus corporate treasury. And and people said, well, I can make the move across. Well, how would you comment on that? I mean, what I mean by that is you've you've gone from the corporate to banking. And I then get, you know, particularly at the moment, given the state of the markets and things like that, lots of people saying, I want to come back from, you know, they, in fact, they haven't had any corporate treasury experience. Mm-hmm. They, they want to make that move. What do they need to think about? Or what, what, what would you advice would you give them? I think the first thing is that in a typical banking environment, and this is where Halifax migrated to, it started off as for, you know, state building society, but with 40 people. And by the end, it was 400 people and I left and a very much a profit center. If you're talking about people in that sort of environment, then it's a, it's a, you have to adjust to a, a, a corporate treasury environment which is not about making money which is not about short-term return it's about risk management it's about relationships and it's all the rest of it so there's i think it depends where you are within the bank because obviously within the banks have their own treasury functions to fund the bank and i think that would probably be a bit easier for people there to move into corporate than it would from say people on a front on a front office desk trading eurobonds or something like that 
to move into corporate directly. I don't, I don't think it's impossible. I don't think they've got a lot to, to give, but it's of understanding the different view of the world that a corporate has compared to yes. Yeah, that your main product is a product versus the main product of a bank is is money and the usage of it as well. That's exactly. One of the, and so you then, we, we, we won't joke about being the dark side because I've done it so many times and I don't really mean it. It's uh, they're just different ways of the, looking at it and you know different lenses, if you like. The move from you know Halifax and then you decided back to a corporate. How did that come about? Halifax a Building Society become Halifax PLC. I actually left before it moved to become HBOS, merging with Bank of Scotland. So I'd been the finance director, the treasury division for six years and then moved from that role to be sort of head of funding and capital markets. And it was a time when there wasn't a lot going on, basically. I think I did two deals in two years. I was very, very quiet, and it didn't look like it was going to change. You know, there, there was a massive emphasis from the bank on taking in retail deposits, corporate deposits, and not in terms of medium-term funding, which may have eventually been one of their problems. But anyway, the sort of corporate treasury loomed its head again. I kind of missed some of the things I used to do, particularly m and and the Anglian opportunity came along, which was also quite interesting because it was involved in actually uh, reorganising the company and in getting into a, a sort of whole company securitization. It was something technical that I could really get involved in as well. And you've got then, you know, and people were here, some sort of moves within the utility sector in, the, in and out and stuff like that. What was it like making that, that shift then to from, how can I put it, from, you know, from, from a bank to a utilities company, you know, because that must have been a cultural shift, spotlight, you know, however you want to call it. I think you know, there's, there's some, there is some similarities. There's, there's always seem to be common threads, yeah. whether it's treasury aspects, which are well, depend, not depending on what organisation you have. There, there are certain ground rules that you, you apply no matter what the organisation is. And also those organisations had some similarities in that, you know, you had a, a building society transitioned into a bank, but it hadn't really completed that process. You had a lot of people that were lifer building society people. And the same with the water company. Ten years previously, it had been privatised, right. but there was still a lot of people who were in that sort of quasi-public sector Civil mindset service. as well. Yeah. So there, were, there were some similarities there, but I think that's part of the challenge. I don't, I don't see why... You know, anyone should want to label themselves as, I don't know, a a utilities treasurer or whatever, because I think part of that moving around has given me much more resource to draw on when you're dealing with a particular problem rather than perhaps having a more narrow approach. It certainly just worked for me. I'm not saying it works for everybody, but I never got faced by the fact that I was moving from one sector to another. In fact, I thought it was a bit of a new challenge, really. Yeah, and I think it's that exactly a bit of that sort of more rounded view of treasury enables you to draw from different strings, from different you know experiences. That's right, absolutely. And so you got there, you did some of the reorganisation, Anglian Water, and then uh, you saw British Energy, and as I described <laughs> in the thing, solvent restructuring of British Energy. Do you want yes. to give us a you know you give us a whistle stop of that, sir? Then lock, stock, and barrel, they call it. It was emotional, and it was very <laughs> emotional. The restructuring of Anglium was coming to an end, and you know the water sector, uh, the water business was being hived off, and and the non-regulated businesses were 
were there and, and we were getting them financed, but it, it wasn't looking as if there would be a, an awful lot to do post that. And along came British Energy, and that was an investment-grade rated company. For those that don't know what British Energy was, British Energy was the company that had been privatised and owned the eight nuclear power stations. Right. They were the last bit of the electricity sector to be privatised, primarily because they were quite problematic with the, all the de- decommissioning and the other uh, other problems or challenges that come with nuclear power. It was the last to be done, but it it was up and running. It was a move to Scotland, which I, I'd always fancied and um, move it out of, you know, I think it was something that family were up for as well. We do like to walk and things. It looked good. The It was, as I say, investment grade rated. It just paid a dividend. And off I went up to East Kilbride in Glasgow to become group treasurer. Well, within three or four weeks, it was my first banking facility was actually arranged with Her Majesty's government. Because we, <laughs> the board had decided that because of the changes to the electricity market that had just taken place, the market price of electricity had fallen well below what British Energy could generate power at. And because it's nuclear, you can't just switch the power stations off. Well, first off, because it's 20% 20 of the UK generation. And secondly, because it's still very, very expensive to keep nuclear power stations not generating. The fuel element's very, very, very small. So the upshot was we were were running out of road very, very quickly, which was an incredible shock to me. I don't think I'd ever thought about what it would be like to actually be be in charge as treasurer of a company that was um, sort of falling apart at the seams, and in this, in our case, very, very rapidly. So I spent the next two and a half years, absolutely fascinating time, with negotiations with the creditors, basically, and Her Majesty's government and a few others, to basically keep the company going and then to refloat it again, which we did successfully, I think in 2005 it was done. So, John, from there, what would be your one sort of takeaway, if you like, or if someone is going to go through that, you know, was there one thing you focused on or was there one thing maybe you focused on, then you walked, walked away and went, wow, I learned this. This was key. Was it, in some sense, about cash, about liquidity, about relationship management. What, what would be the one takeaway you would give people or, or a couple maybe? The one is uh, related to treasury management. And that is, I have never looked at documentation the same way since. When, when we went through that process with what seemed like an infinite number of different lawyers pouring over the company's funding documentation, you realized how critical it was and how, if something had been wrong and there were, and there were elements that, that were wrong, how much difficulty that could give the company and the creditors and everything else. Right. So I've never taken lightly since. And, you know, it's been commented, you know, John, for God's sake, stop being a bore about this documentation. And it's because of that. It's because I had to go through the repercussions of slightly flawed documentation. So always look at your documentation and always you know, ensure that it's as good as it could possibly be. But I think also from a, a personal perspective, I really kind of learned a lot from that. I learned mainly about that actually, you know, when a push comes to the shove, because this is not an easy time for anyone, be a lot of information is demanded very quickly. A lot of decisions have to be made quickly. Is that you? You know, you can ri- rise to the challenge. And that I remember one particular uh, weekend we were working, and I had to present to I think it was around fifty bankers on a Monday morning 
and I bear in mind, I was not that familiar with the company myself. Yeah. I've been there about eight weeks at the time. This was a, pr- a complicated project financing on a coal-powered station. And I had to take them through the our proposals for how their debt would be then, you know, brought into the mix with everybody else's when it came to the restructuring. And I had to do that over about a 45-minute period without going through each slide and everything else. Yeah. And I always look, look back on that, and I think perhaps other, you know, I'm sure others would do the same and say, if I could, I got through it. it you know, I was absolutely nervous as hell, mainly about what sort of questions I could get afterwards. And but thinking, if I can do that, it's made any presentation since any board or anything else so much easier because I can just think back to that and say that it can't be as bad as it was when I had to go through the Edgar Power Stations sites. Yeah, <laughs> you're just like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I think for, I went from being, what on earth does this mean? I've just moved my family up to Scotland. But do I have a job anymore? Do Are people going to blame me? I know I've only been here five minutes, but I am the treasurer. It's thinking about all of those things. Or what the hell's going to happen now? Yeah. To one where two and a half years later, I think it was probably the best two and a half years of learning I have ever had both as a you know as an individual and technically you needed a sift drink didn't you you that's what you really <laughs> needed uh, both in the I, right I, country <laughs> it's 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 like comic gold and then you made a move to scottish in newcastle maybe again you can explain what that move was like yeah well i've, I've always wanted to work for a brewery ah, um, and that was part of it I, again a bit like anglian when british energy came out of its restructuring process it was very much constrained about what it could do in the future. So the government had put sort of rules around, and the EU in particular, in order to get state aid, we had to commit to sell power stations, some power stations, we'd, or had to commit not to buy any more, all of that. But really put a straight jacket around the company. And all the financing had been put in place. And there was really not a lot for me to do. But And also, I didn't want to move from Scotland. I wanted to to stay in Scotland. And there are, as you know, Mike, not, not a lot of corporates in Scotland oh, no. uh, that can support a treasurer. I'm and talking. therefore, up came Scottish and Newcastle. So that was where we moved, moved from one side of the country to the other, from Glasgow to Edinburgh. And obviously a very difficult move to persuade you to come and work for, as you say, a brewing company with <laughs> beer and wash and things like that. Obviously, you know, you were just getting in there to taste the product just to make sure for qualitative purposes, as we know, you know, we both say this. Um, what was it like? What was that move like? It was interesting. I mean, I think it was a business and, and I've lost contact with the brewing world, not as a consumer, but um, as someone in, in the sort of finance side. But Certainly at the time, and I suspect it is now, it's one of massive consolidation, a declining market. And we had the smoking ban in Scotland, which really did for the entree bad, um, bad, very bad things. Mm. And it was coming in England. So there was quite a lot of restructuring going on, selling of the, the pub business. We sold the logistics business as well. And it was, it was one of sort of maximizing uh, the balance sheet to withstand the pressures coming from the commercial side so that we didn't go sub-investment grade. The company was pretty highly geared, but at the end of the day, we were the weakest of the large brewers, and Heineken and Carlsberg got together and took us apart, basically, between the two of them, and uh, made an offer that eventually got to a certain price that the board felt was comfortable with, and, and that was the end of Scottish Newcastle. 
And so after that and the brewing group, obviously you were doing your tour of Scotland, you know, a bit of a, a journey around it. You sort of went and joined Weir Group. So maybe talk us through that move. Yes, certainly. So post effectively being made redundant from Scottish and Newcastle post the, the takeover, Weir Group, I was very fortunate, was looking for a group treasurer as well. I actually became, I think, the first full-time treasurer there. They, they'd employed um, a lady who'd done a fantastic job on, a, on an interim basis, but I'm, I sort of moved in to be group treasurer there. A very a company embedded in history yeah. with, the, with the Clyde shipbuilding industry, but really going places with a lot of investment overseas, particularly in the U.S., and particularly in oil and gas and, and fracking, which is back in 2008-2010 area, was all good stuff. And, you know, fracking was, was nothing to be worried about. And, of course, nowadays it's uh, completely different. And it's an industry that's now in decline. But at the time, it was going places and we was going places. Yeah. And, and very soon after I joined, we got into the FTSE 100 and did quite a lot of um, acquisition-related funding, as well as sort of global cash management. that We were in, uh, I think it was over 70 countries. Yeah, and uh, some of that was quite challenging. Um, John, we have one thing we haven't really touched on, and because I just I think it's an interesting journey, and I didn't want to interrupt it. But you've obviously coached a number of teams. You know, we're going to come on to your your next role where you've got this massive, wider brief on team management and things like that. But before we did that, obviously, a lot of treasury teams are you know, sometimes you, you're a solo treasurer. You know, just you yourself and I, and and everything else. And then other teams, you've got you know different sizes of groups. Just looking at and maybe Weir or some of the other bits, you, you've you've coached and managed teams. You, what are, what sizes have you gone until that stage, if you like, up until this role and including this role? Yeah, well, I guess the, the biggest team I ever managed was when I was at the Halifax, the finance credit risk teams that I looked after. I think it was about eighty in total, and that went down as low as three or three or four. Yeah, and all with very different challenges. Okay, but you've said you've managed these larger teams and things like that and smaller teams, up and down and up and down. But what's your ethos around team management? Again, for people listening, they might be treasury managers, first time to manage a treasury analyst or something like that. What would you tips for success? You know, is it good cop, bad cop? You know, I, sometimes when I'm managing and I, I work with Joe, my, my junior guy that's come in with us and I'm sort of trying to give him positive feedback some critical stuff and then you know soften it with and then looking at the positives and where it would come out of it is that your kind of ethos or where did you where do you do it the way i do it is and i ask myself this question whenever there's something good or bad that you have to convey to somebody else and that is how would i like it how would i like to be treated yeah and i think on the whole, I mean, you know, it doesn't always work because, you know, everyone's different. Yeah. But if you try and be fair and honest, I don't think there's anything hugely complicated about leadership. I think it's about setting a good example. People are only going to be, I always think, you know, they're only going to be as good as you are yeah. in terms of your behaviours. So if you set bad behaviours, if you, you have one rule for them, one rule for you, then you're not going to get anywhere. And if you are dishonest with people, if you're not open or as open as you possibly can be with them, then you want to lose their trust. I think, you know, if you can engender a team spirit of being a part of the team, but being a leader is difficult, as you know, because you can't be one of the boys or, the, yeah. or one, of the, one of the girls or, or whatever. You've got to be slightly aloof. But you can do that in a nice way and make sure that, that you're consistent as well. Yeah. So, you know, you're not... 
all matey with them one day and then absolutely doesn't want don't want to talk to anybody the following day. It's consistency, honesty, and setting a good example. It, I, I just I'm not saying I've always got it right by any means at all, but I I found those three very very simple things to really help me. Well, I'm going to make sure they go on the show notes because I think that I'm, I'm not going to paraphrase them. I think, I think they're brilliant. And I think actually that's where, and I concur, you know, that's exactly, you know, I think the, the message is how would I like to be treated? You know, and I think that's always the, the watchword I've gone through. And we recently had our 150th podcast where we were all talking about our ethos around recruitment and, you know, particularly deep dive in there. And that's one of the things that I just always thought you can't get wrong, really. You know, if just if you just think exactly that way, and I think there's a, a great thing from yourself for treasury professionals out there. So, you know, listen to the way John does it. So we like that. And then you well, you've had enough. You've done your Scotland, you you got your you got your miles on the clock, as it were. You've done most of each of the big treasury roles up there. And it was time for this move before you finished. So what led to that? Or talk us through. First of all, it was domestic thing. My my wife wanted to come back to England to because we wanted to leave living close to my father in law. He was just recently had his ninetieth birthday. But my intention was to stay at Weir and just uh, commute back at weekends and do a few more years at Weir. To say I must be very very jammy, um, <laughs> lucky because up pot the seven Trent role within two months of us moving down here and seven trent well we live in northamptonshire and it's a it's a, a 30 mile drive hey, can you for the listeners again that have you know uk we know we know a lot of people will know seven trent yeah. but again two-thirds of our listenership and a big shout out to you guys there in the u.s uh they come from the u.s which is amazing who and what seven trent what do they do so seven trent are like anglian they are a water uh, company right. to provide water and wastewater services. Our water industry is divided geographically. So Seven Trent looks after the the Midlands up to the Peak District. Uh, so kind of the the middle portion of England. So one of the I think it's the third largest water company in the UK. Then the role came, as you say, the sort of role came up. If that's the right way, what did it offer you? You know, uh, bar. You know, be a bit cheeky. Oh, it's a move close to home. Good group treasurer, big group treasurer job. Yeah, I'll take it. What was it about that challenge? Because I know that there were lots of different things with the different funding and and things. You're an experienced treasury head, so that you know you're going to get thrown this. But what did it offer you in terms of challenge? You know, one. I know there was the logistical thing, but it wasn't just that, was it? So no, no, not at all. No, we we was running out of steam a bit, and unfortunately, that that has continued because the market that they'd put in significant investment in yeah. the US fracking market has has really waned as oil prices have fallen. And also the water sector has become a lot more challenging since the time I was Anglian in, in the beginning of, of the century. It's the regulator, the model that's set to pricing is far more demanding now than it was then. And other issues have come up such as the whole pension debate, defined pension benefit pension schemes. I think funding is the level of funding has increased as well. So it was presenting a, a, a lot more challenge than perhaps it would have been sort of 15 years previously. I, I, th- I think of, of all the things that I've done within the Treasury sphere, funding is the one that gives me the most interest and pleasure because you you do feel as if that's the thing you're 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 almost providing yeah. the blood transfusion to keep the the company going and 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 in the case of seven trend which has over six billion of funding and an interest bill you know 
close to 200 million a year, you're a significant tr- contributor to the bottom line. Yeah. So it's always that's always been my favorite topic and that was there in spades with seven trend and i get a lot of pushback sometimes it was one of our deputy treasurers i placed for a FTSE 50 and they were absolutely desperate to have you know i've got to do bonds i've got to do this i've got to do this and and, and the treasurer at the time as she said she said Mike, I don't understand why she wants this. She hasn't got it on her resume, on CV, and she really wants this and, and stuff. And she went, when she discovers it, actually, you know, well, there's a lot, there's some interesting stuff, but it's mostly quite boring because you do all the structuring, you get it. And then when it gets to the interesting sign, you hand it off to the lawyers, they close the door. And then afterwards, they say, right, we're going out for lunch. Can you just do the documentation now? Thanks very much. And off you go. It's obviously different. Or what would you say is the, you know, the key part about that? And do you think that, you know, when you've looked at hiring people that you've always looked for that sort of background or have been more flexible than that, would you say? There's so many facets to the funding. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, we talked about documentation, how important that is. But, but actually, these days, it's more about understanding your investor base and finding new investors, particularly in this water sector where the funding level is always going to rise. So you've got more new funding to do and you've got renewing, refinancing to do as well. So you've got all those aspects, making sure that you've got different investor bases, have different maturities, that you've got the right mix of fixed floating or index linked or whatever. I think it's a, it's a fascinating area to, to be involved in. Now, who makes, who, who does that well? Who are, who are the good people in that? Well, I don't think you necessarily need somebody with huge amounts of experience to do that at all. What, and I think this is more common to Treasury people generally, not just in funding, is you just need somebody who's very, very curious and has bags of enthusiasm and energy because that gets you so, – I mean, obviously, you've got to be numeric or, yeah, yeah. and all that stuff, but, but it's, a, it's about enthusiasm and curiosity. And I think also more so now being good with people, being good with investors, being good with rating agency people, being good with bankers – getting them to understand your business and also internally now with funding being more ESG focused as well bringing all the fat those facets into play as well because investors are very demanding about that sort of information flow and, and what they're putting their money to to work in and also much more demanding from rating agencies as well so that's my view <laughs> And so, you know, on today's episode, you know, it wasn't really the right way to sort of then talk about the future of Treasury per se, because I think we've already alluded to that anyway. I think it was much more, you know, wanting to go through that chronicle of your career and people picking out really interesting things. But we do have, you know, a number of different listeners across the world that are going, you know, maybe beginning of their career. So they're sort of Treasury analysts making those first few moves. So maybe some advice for those guys some treasury managers, so senior, they're making the step up the curve. They're coming there. And then we've also got some of the war stories, you know, and we don't need to deep dive those, but, you know, just some of the advice that you might give. I, I think you gave some great stuff there about, you know, treating others as, you know, when you're there as the, the GT, you know, don't have to be the, you know, best friends with the people, but, you know, really that collegiate sort of ethos. Enough talking from me. We'll put your LinkedIn details in the show notes, but what, what tips would you give to people, you know, that are listening today? I think the first one is to be brave, but I've had, a, as we've seen, quite a varied career and sometimes been up against it at the time, been very nervous at times about outcomes and that. But actually, 
I think the, the maxim is just to go for it, just to, right. to to push the boundaries as much as you, you feel comfortable with and perhaps beyond that as well. Because I've seen people that have been highly successful that have had you know pretty indifferent or worse uh, times in their careers, but have managed to recover. So be brave, take the challenge, do something different. The second thing I would say is actually enjoy it. Because we're, we're at work an awful lot of time. Treasury Man is, is a fantastic opportunity to meet new people, to go and, and, and challenge yourself technically. So don't get in a, a, in, a, in a rut. Make sure you're enjoying your job. And if you're not, make sure that you're doing something about it. Yeah. Amazing advice there from a treasurer with so much to offer. And, uh, well, enjoy your collection of guitars and, uh, yeah, getting the guys to listen to them. You know, some of the, the tunes coming from we were just talking about your fender nice and you know a bit of bit of guitar jealousy there so enjoy it john thank you very much for your time and the advice you've given i think the guys are going to really enjoy it and again you know do connect with john he you know may be doing further things and stuff and it's a he's a great person to have in your network so uh thank you for your time today sir thank you very much michael really enjoyed it thank you bye-bye hello it's mike here again i hope you enjoyed this week's show if you did then maybe you want to follow the show or subscribe, depending on where you listen, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, or another great place to listen to the show from. It's totally free and means that you'll be the first to see each and every week when we release a new show. And maybe whilst you're there, you could even leave a quick review. Reviews and ratings are among the most important metrics for a podcast to effectively rank. And as you can probably appreciate, the podcast is a lot of hard work to produce every week. It'd be amazing just take say 20 seconds leave a quick review of my amazing guests and their great career stories we'd really appreciate it thanks very much and i can't wait to see you soon